0: One by one, he sounded the great themes of our times. History's headlong course has brought us, I devoutly believe, to the threshold of a new America, to the America of the great ideals and noble visions, which are the stuff our future must be made of. His eloquence expressed the hopes and aspirations of the common men all the wall over. The human race is a family. Men are brothers. All wars are civil wars, and all killing is fratricidal. Now that he is gone, I think of the line from Pilgrim's Progress. So he passed over, and all the trumpets sounded for him on the other side.
1: L.A. Ewing Stevenson, born Los Angeles, February 5, 1900. Died London, July 14, 1965. Nationality American, citizenship the world. This is a portrait of a statesman, a man who demonstrated that language and the spoken word are powers in and of themselves, who denied the supremacy of the practical cynicism espoused by so many of his contemporaries. This is a portrait of a man whose overwhelming moral force has played an important role in the shaping of domestic politics and international diplomacy. In many ways the first fifty years of Adlai Stevenson's life was spent in preparation for the days he would make his contribution to international understanding. According to American Lights, he was an aristocrat. On his father's side, the grandson and namesake of the vice president during the second administration of Grover Cleveland. On his mother's side, the grandson of the man who first proposed Abraham Lincoln for the presidency. These were his birthright. In his own right, Following the completion of his education, Stevenson held a number of legal posts in the national administration of Franklin Roosevelt, culminating in 1945 with his appointment as a representative to the conference in San Francisco that established the United Nations. Three years later, in 1948, he entered the political arena and was elected governor of Illinois in a landslide. When President Harry S. Truman announced he would not run for re-election in 1952, the Democratic Party began a search for a standard-bearer. When his name was mentioned, Stevenson protested that he did not want the nomination. But the party drafted him, and he told the delegates gathered in Chicago,
0: I accept your nomination and your program. And now, my friends, that you have made your decision, I will fight to win that office with all my heart and my soul.
1: The Republican nominee was war hero Dwight Eisenhower, and the election proved no contest. As the return spelled defeat for Stevenson that November, he told the people, I have lost, but I have said what I mean and meant what I said. No man can do more, and you are entitled to no less. Then he added,
0: Someone asked me as I came in down on the street how I felt. And I was reminded of a story that a fellow townsman of ours used to tell, Abraham Lincoln. And they asked him how he felt once after an unsuccessful election. He said he felt like a little boy who had stubbed his toe in the dark. That he was too old to cry but it hurt too much to laugh.
1: (laughs) While the electoral vote was a lopsided 442 to 89, Stevenson managed to roll up 27 million popular votes, 3 million more than were cast for Truman in his successful 1948 campaign. Adlai Stevenson had made his mark on the nation and his party, and in 1956, he sought and won the nomination again. In his acceptance address to the Chicago Convention, he said,
0: I come here on a solemn mission. I accept your nomination and your program. Four years ago, I stood in this same place and uttered those same words to you. But four years ago, i did not seek the honor that you bestowed upon me this time as you may have noticed it was not entirely unsolicited
1: during the campaign he would discuss that convention in unconventional style
0: i remember at the height of the convention i walked boldly into a marching group of my supporters the leader was a an immense woman um, who was clearly about to become a mother
1: And she was carrying
0: a huge poster saying, Stevenson is the man.
1: (laughs) But the result at the polls was the same as four years earlier, an overwhelming victory for Eisenhower.
0: To you who are disappointed, let me confess that I am too. Here in America, the people have made their choice in a vigorous partisan contest that has affirmed again the vitality of the democratic process. And I say, God bless partisanship, for this is democracy's lifeblood.
1: Looking back on his two unsuccessful efforts, Stevenson often told this story.
0: I take some comfort in the philosophy of a taxi driver who said to me one time, "Um, uh, why did you run for president anyway? And I said, well, uh, why not? And uh, he said, well, if you run for president, and you're... ...to tell you how grateful I am for this tumultuous and moving welcome to the 1960 Democratic Convention. have, however, uh, an observation. After getting in and out of the Biltmore Hotel in this hall, I've decided that I know who you're going to nominate. It will be the last survivor.
1: The enthusiasm of the spectators at that convention was brought to a near frenzy by this memorable nominating address by Senator Eugene McCarthy of Minnesota.
0: I submit to you A man who is not the favorite son of any one state, I submit to you the man who is the favorite son of 50 states. And not only of 50 states, but the favorite son of every country in the world in which he is known. Son, in every country in which he is unknown, but in which some spark, even though unexpressed, by way of desire for liberty and freedom still lives. This favorite son I submit to you, Adley Stevenson of Illinois!
1: But Stevenson had mounted no serious effort to win the nomination, and on the first ballot it went to John F. Kennedy. In a meeting room in a Los Angeles hotel, surrounded by his admirers, Stevenson bid a fond farewell to the political wars. Here
0: in the year 1960 was born a new political spirit in the death of an old political cause.
1: In two campaigns and a brief fling at the 1960 convention, he had demonstrated that moral values were relative to politics, that intelligence, wit, and meaning were vital parts of the public dialogue on any and all issues. He had reorganized the Democratic Party and paved the way for the successful new frontier of 1960 with his own New America theme of 1956. While he did not attain the high office he sought, Adlai Stevenson left his indelible mark On the nation's political life. As one aspect of his career faded, another began to flower. President Kennedy appointed Stevenson ambassador to the United Nations in 1961, and in the years that followed, he frequently spoke out on the issues that meant war or peace. This prodigal arms race is dangerous
0: and deadly folly. Here in the United States, We want to save, not destroy, our fellow man. We want to devote the resources now swallowed up by this insatiable monster to the unfinished tasks of our own society. And we want to devote these resources to giving every soul on earth a chance for a better life. Yet the arms race goes on. It goes on because no nation confronted by hostile nations can neglect its defenses. No great power can risk unilateral disarmament. There is one way and one way only out of the intolerable
1: dilemma, and that
0: is a system of complete
1: and general disarmament. While he could call for disarmament, he was able to view realistically the twin threats of aggression and appeasement and the need for strength. The policy of appeasement is always intended to strengthen the moderates,
0: in the country appeased, but its effect is always to strengthen the extremists. We are prepared to meet and reconcile every legitimate Soviet concern, but we have only contempt for blackmail. We know that every retreat before intimidation strengthens those who say that the threat of force can always achieve communist objectives. Reluctantly and repeatedly, we have to face the sad fact that the only way to reinforce those on the other side is to make it absolutely clear that aggression will be met with resistance and force with force.
1: To him, the split in the communist camp revealed new dangers as well as new opportunities. The
0: monolithic communist world is full of cracks and diversity is no longer a monopoly of any region or grouping. A world made safe for diversity, however, is not yet a world made safe with diversity. There are dangers of course when any big iceberg begins to crack. The fishes in the communist world have caused the aggressive lone wolf foreign policy of communist China to stand out as both more obvious and more threatening to the rest of the world.
1: When the situation involved conflict, when blood was being spilled, Stevenson's words could be exceedingly simple and extremely clear.
0: The doctrine of militant violence has been rendered null and void by the technology of modern weapons and the vulnerability of a world in which the peace cannot be ruptured anywhere without endangering the peace everywhere. The people of Laos want to be left alone. The people of Vietnam want to be left alone. The people of Cambodia want to be left alone. When their neighbors decide to leave them alone, as they must, there will be no fighting in Southeast Asia
1: during the security council debate on the cuban missile crisis in 1962 stevenson showed he could be tough when he cornered the soviet delegate with this blistering line of attack
0: do you ambassador zoran deny that the ussr has placed and is placing medium and intermediate range missiles and sites in cuba yes or no don't wait for the translation yes or no i'm not I am not in an American courtroom, sir,
1: and therefore I do not wish to answer a question that is put to me in the fashion in which a prosecutor does. In due course, sir, you will have your reply.
0: I'm prepared to wait for my answer until hell freezes over, if that's your decision.
1: Stevenson was grieved when representatives of the emerging African nations, whose causes he often championed, launched attacks against the United States. And on occasion, he felt obliged to unleash the fury of his words on them.
0: Racial hatred, racial strife has cursed the world for too long. I make no defense of the sins of the white race in this respect. But the antidote for white racism is not black racism.
1: But whatever the issue, and no matter how bitter and frustrating the debate, Stevenson kept a single theme running through his approach to the important problems with which he grappled, that the United Nations was the world's best hope for peace. At ceremonies in San Francisco, observing the 20th anniversary of the United Nations, Stevenson revealed his view of the organization's meaning and role in world affairs.
0: Man in his civil society has learned how to live under the law with the institutions of justice and with a controlled strength that can protect rich and poor alike. This has been done within domestic society. And in this century, for the first time in human history, we are attempting similar safeguards, a similar framework of justice, a similar sense of law and impartial protection in the whole wide society of man. This is the profound, the fundamental, the audacious meaning of the United Nations. It is our shield against international folly in an age of ultimate weapons. We must make it grow and flourish, arbitrator of our disputes, mediator of our conflicts, impartial protector against arbitrary violence. Mr. President, we have the United Nations. We have set it bravely up and we shall carry it bravely forward.
1: In his final address to a United Nations organization, Adlai Stevenson made an eloquent plea for peace. He spoke to members of the Economic and Social Council meeting in Geneva, Switzerland, only a few days before he died, and told them, We travel together,
0: passengers on a little spaceship, dependent on its vulnerable reserve of air and soil, all committed for our safety to its security and peace preserved from annihilation only by the care, the work. And I will say the love that we give to our fragile craft. We cannot maintain it half fortunate, half miserable, half confident, half despairing, half slave to the ancient enemies of man, half free in a liberation of resources. No craft, no crew, can travel safely with such vast contradictions. On their resolution then depends the survival of us all.
1: When Sir Winston Churchill died in January of 1965, Adlai Stevenson spoke for the United States in special memorial ceremonies in Washington's National Cathedral. The words he used to honor Britain's great statesman seemed to fit Stevenson as well. We shall hear no longer
0: the remembered eloquence and wit, the old courage and defiance, the robust serenity of indomitable faith. Our world is thus poorer. Our political dialogue is diminished, and the sources of public inspiration run more thinly. For all of us, there is a lonesome place against the sky. For him, humanity, its freedom, its survival, towered above pettier interests. Like the patriarchs of old, he waited on God's judgment, and it could be said of him, as of the immortals that went before him, that God magnified him in the fear of his enemies, and with his words, he made prodigies to cease. He glorified him in the sight of kings, and gave him commandments in the sight of his people. He showed him his glory, and sanctified him in his faith.
1: On January 14, 1962, in New York City, the Anti-Defamation League of the B'nai B'rith presented Adlai Stevenson with its America's Democratic Legacy Award. On that occasion, Stevenson delivered a verbal essay on democracy in an address memorable for its brilliance, wit, and eloquence. Here is that address.
0: I wonder if you remember that um, story of the, that um, essay about the average Englishman that appeared in The Economist uh, some 25 years ago during the after the famous abdication crisis was over all of the press cabinet ministers the archbishops had poured out tributes to the splendid was the word qualities of steadfastness of forbearance of dignity and wisdom displayed by the ordinary British people at that time. This flood of praise was modestly acknowledged in an essay signed by a symbolic, as I recall, Mr. Smith, who seemed somewhat dazed by it all. I feel a bond of intimate friendship with this gentleman. And then he ended by admitting, in these words, I am driven by the weight of authority, both temporal and spiritual, to which I don't quite grasp myself, I am splendid. (laughs) I was speaking the other day in Washington um, to the Foreign Service Association. I was reminded perhaps by the presence of so many diplomats that um, of a remark that Disraeli made one time that seems to me peculiarly appropriate at this moment when um, a young, callow new member of uh, the House of Commons came to him and said, "Uh, Mr. Prime Minister, do you think I should uh, participate actively in the debates And he um, gave him him an appraising glance and said, um, No, young man, I don't think you should. I think it would be better uh, for people to wonder why you didn't talk rather than why you did. (laughs) However, I'm obliged to talk and I better get at it. We live in a time when it is necessary as never before to call attention, (coughs) serious, meditative, even urgent attention to the democratic legacy of this nation of ours. For as the word legacy itself implies, our democratic principles are not an heirloom to be kept on the shelf, or a magic wand to be waved without effort, or a plushy Patrimony to be enjoyed without work is the kind of inheritance which every generation must earn anew by reconquering the known wisdom of the past and by wrestling with the unknown hopes and dangers of the present. We are all brave enough to be against George III, to be against slavery, but the issues of our time are quite another matter. They could scarcely be dreamt of when this nation was in its first youth. They are fought out in theaters as wide as the world and extending even to the space beyond. And they are fought out here at home, in our public policies, our schools and churches and synagogues, at our family breakfast tables and in our secret consciences. I will not exhaust you with one more attempt to define democracy or to say what our national goal should be. Democracy itself will always defy definition, just because every citizen has a built-in right to formulate his own definition. Defining democracy is like squaring the circle. After centuries of labor, the mathematicians solved the problem by proving that it could not be solved. And if you complain that that is a paradox, I would reply that democracy's greatest strength is in its acceptance of paradox and in the room which it allows for the unimaginable, the incommensurable, the possibilities of human nature. But today, Democracy here at home and around the world is being strained and tested as we know as never before. And perhaps you may say all this talk of paradoxical strength is pretty cold comfort in the face of the raw challenge and the vaulting ambition of the new power emerging in the world. Let me, if I may, consider that for a moment. Sometimes we hear the issue argued as a simple question of efficiency. Communism, the argument runs, has singleness of purpose. It can organize its forces in line with a global strategy. It can mobilize its whole people. It can send trained agents where it will. It can divert men and resources secretly into armaments and terrorize dissenters. It takes full advantage of free debate on our side of the line but seals off its people from our truth and feeds them whatever lies it chooses. It hangs up a curtain of secrecy while its agents help themselves to strategic information from our free and open societies. Now, with all of these disadvantages, with all of its disorderly debates and cross-purposes, I, People inquire whether democracy is becoming a luxury that we can't any longer afford. Is it possibly true, as the communist leaders love to say, that history really is on their side? Even if you ask the question in those terms, which are the terms that they prefer, I think history since 1945 has already begun to give the answer, and the answer is no. Communism has yet to be the popular choice of one single nation anywhere on the face of the Cuba. It has been in the same classic role as the scavenger of war and of ruined revolutions. And we have seen, too, that the high tide can recede. Yugoslavia ceased to be a satellite Poland achieved a certain measure of internal autonomy and in more than one country of Africa and Asia communist ambassadors have been requested to go home and to take their agents with them. So even in these terms of sheer efficiency in the struggle between two supposed world systems the score isn't so one-sided. The promised victory of communism keeps on receding into the future. The juggernaut just doesn't jug. Either democracy is less bumbling than we fear, or communism is less efficient than it claims. But of course this is only one part of the argument, because beneath this question of efficiency lies a greater and a deeper question. Efficiency for what? What is their purpose, and what is ours? It is small wonder that dictatorships look efficient at waging war whether cold or hot, because a totalitarian government is in its very essence a kind of war machine. Power is the ultimate justification for all of its acts, and the extension of power is the chief article of its foreign policy. The aims of democracy are altogether different, as I would not be a slave, so I would not be a master. We positively don't want power, we positively don't want a domination over others. The greatest triumph of the Marshall Plan was not, as Moscow then said, to enslave Europe, but rather to get it back on its feet and restore its independence. Our aim in the emerging nations is basically the same. We strive not for power, but for community, at home and among Nations, for a community with all of the rich variety and mutual tolerance which it implies, with such fundamentally different aims, how is it possible to compare communism and democracy in terms of efficiency? You might as well ask whether a locomotive is more efficient than a symphony orchestra. What we do say and believe in the center of our being is that our aims are more valid. Democracy takes into account the factor to which communism seems so invincibly obtuse, the unsearchable depths of the mind and the spirit of man who will forever thwart the attempts of dogma and of ideology to predict him or to hem him in. This is the wisdom of humility, which is one of democracy's chief glories and which the totalitarian mind in its vain pride cannot understand or attain. All great students and practitioners of democracy have understood it. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes was once asked by what great principle his judicial opinions were guided. And he said, I have spent 70 years finding out that I am not God. And Pasternak's tragic Dr. Zhivago expressed the same thing in his poignant appeal to the zealot who boasted that communism would reshape life. He answered him, reshaping life. People who can say that have never understood a thing about life. They look on it as a lump of raw material that needs to be processed by them, to be ennobled by their touch. But life is the principle of self-renew. It is constantly renewing and remaking and changing and transfiguring itself. It is infinitely beyond your or my obtuse theories about it. Well, not only aims but performance, too, must concern us. Let us say that our worldwide aim is a community of nations which, as the United Nations Charter says, will practice tolerance and live together in peace with one another as good neighbors. Judged by that aim, our own true aim, I believe, how, then, is democracy doing? What are the dangers it must overcome? I think on the Thomas Jefferson, that most humane and civilized of Americans was afraid of the melting pots. He predicted that immigrants from European monarchies would import the very political principles from which we had fled and would then transmit them to their children. But of course, exactly the opposite happened. Certainly today, we need have no fear of cultural and racial pluralism. We have far to go, but our country has already proved beyond any possible doubt for ourselves and for all of the world that there is no barrier of race or of worship or of culture which the unflinching practice of democratic brotherhood cannot cross. There are other fears, compounded of fact and of fiction, which are too well known and too long exploded to detain us long. From the extreme right, we still hear that the income tax is socialism. Socialism is communism, and so freedom is already done for. Or we hear that the real threat is not in the truculent power of Moscow or of Peking, but in the freedom of unpopular opinion or in any authority, be it the President or the Supreme Court, which refuses to punish error as if it were treason. Or we hear that the United Nations is a big communist plot. If you follow that line to the end, you conclude with the discovery that the worst danger of all is democracy itself. From the radical left and sometimes from the radical pacifists. We hear other voices of doom. We have great armed forces, they say, therefore our freedom is doomed by a garrison state. Or we have big businesses, therefore democracy is being strangled by greedy monopolies. We have internal contradictions, as the ideologists love to say, labor versus capital, farms versus cities, importers versus exporters, and therefore democracy will tear itself to pieces. And if internal contradictions, uh, as if internal contradictions were not the very fuel that makes the engine of democracy run. You know the fable of Chicken Little who got hit on the head with an acorn and went around screaming, the sky is falling. That's about what all of these alarms, it seems to me, are worth. What a pity it is that the nerves of even one American should be frazzled with these mythical dangers when there are so many real and deeper dangers for democracy to face in our time. Whoever reads the newspapers knows what they are. Abroad, through all of the emerging world, There is the danger that the hunger for a better life will be used to bait the hooks of demagogues to bankrupt economies before they get started and thus to lead unsuspecting millions into communism or some other form of tyranny before they have even had a chance to find out what freedom is. Among the nations of the North Atlantic, which are the economic powerhouse of the free world, There is the danger that this great trading community with its immense creative possibilities will be frustrated by a vast transatlantic economic duel. There is the danger that racial prejudice and the wilder forms of tribal or national chauvinism will weaken and balkanize the peoples of Afro-Asia and even of Latin America and cut them off From the powerful creative economies of the North Atlantic just when this partnership is most vital to their hopes. There is the danger so recently illustrated at the United Nations that the final chapters of European colonialism will be written in violence and chaos and the fabric of international peace and law damaged beyond calculation. All these are dangers For the community of the free and therefore they are also opportunities for the world for the would-be burial squads of communism we of the west must act to avert them by every means we have one means will certainly be to evolve on a scale never yet attempted an enduring partnership for economic and social growth between the free industrial economies and the aspiring new peoples of the world. They will not be completed at all unless we Americans in whose hands so much of the future rests can learn certain other lessons in our own society and in our own habits of thought. We must remember that handsome is as handsome does. Our country has become so conspicuous that every flaw of economic or racial injustice, every debasement of quality, every blemish of bad taste, of bad manners, or shoddy self-indulgence is likely to be studied and commented on in the cruel light of opinion. We must learn to avoid the false alternatives which sound so good in argument and mean so little in real life. Why argue about total war and total peace when sheer common sense tells us that the first is unthinkable and the second unattainable? Why pretend to choose between reliance on armed power and reliance on the friendship and common uh, purpose up in the United Nations when it is perfectly obvious that our national security depends on both? We must apply ourselves to the long and the difficult adventure of converting the fearful and suspicious into friends and neighbors. Sometimes I think that if we Americans had been able to foresee in 1945 what an endless train of disappointments and hard decisions and bitter conflicts we would find in the United Nations that we would never have dared to join it. Perhaps there is something merciful then in our lack of foresight. If our national habit were one of brooding over all of the possible pitfalls ahead, there is no telling how often we might have shirked those forbiddingly difficult tasks which a great nation must tackle or perish. So Americans have tackled many a big and a stubborn job, and they have stayed with it to the end. Now history has given us, I dare say, the biggest job of all, We are destined to work for the rest of our lives, along with every nation and people who will join us to build a community of tolerance and of peace, a house of freedom, which will be big enough, ultimately, for all mankind. The house will never be finished, for freedom itself is not a static condition, but a process and a way of life utterly unpredictable in the forms in which it may evolve. Indeed, the house, is already in existence in a most imperfect and precarious way, and its name is the United Nations. The United Nations is now in the midst of a lot of criticism at home and abroad, much of it from people who would like to restrict the benefits of the Charter to one class, to one race, to one region. But the United Nations is built for the whole world, And if it tried to satisfy all the sectional views, it would end by doing nothing and would soon become an object of contempt. The United Nations is far from being an object of contempt today. Dag Hammarskjöld used to say, if you don't like the United Nations, you don't like the world. Because the United Nations is first and foremost a reflection of the real world of men and nations with all of their aims and virtues. But it is also something more, something very close to our democratic heritage. It is a standard. It sheds upon the real world the light of moral principles written in the Charter. That light may flicker, but it will not be extinguished. And so long as we have strength, it is up to us to cope with the stubborn evils which the light reveals. I would close with one last thought about that mysterious thing, freedom. The true genius of freedom stems, I find, but from an altogether different quality called loving kindness. The very origin of the word bears this out. From the beginning of recorded language, it has been related to words meaning peace and love. One of these words is friend, In ancient times, you and your family, your clan, and your tribe, these friends were free. All others in your village were foreign slaves captured in war. The free man then is first of all the beloved, the friend, the man with whom one is at peace. And now under our rocket-laden skies, the family which must uh, learn to live together in peace and in love, and therefore in freedom, is the family called man, all three billion of him. We should not complain that the attainment of this goal is difficult or even in any perfect sense impossible. Our magnificent gift of freedom was forged in difficulty and suffering And the impossible was always its guiding light. Thank you from the bottom of my heart.